Hi, I'm Guy. I have quadriplegic cerebral palsy, and Johnny is one of my carers. Please, help me and sign up to bitrom.com slash my Star Wars life debt, so he can stop talking about Star Wars to me. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Welcome to this stacked episode of the Life Dead Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Arm, and today we are going to take a look at the last three weeks of blog posts uh, that have been missed because of the Rebels Revisited Revisited trilogy. Um, so, this is going to be a stacked episode, and of course, I'm recording this minutes before sex starts. So, Without further ado, let's get into some business. Let's get some uh, some blog posts and then reviewing Ahsoka. Oh yes, can't wait. Here goes. You can visit the blog at www.mystyleoflifedead.com. You can find me on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash life dead blog post. Follow me on Twitter at bloody on B L O D Y O R N E. On Instagram.com forward slash my style life dead. And at my style life dead dot threads dot com. If you want to email the blog, get an email into the uh, email the podcast, I mean. If you want to get your thoughts onto an episode, or even if you want to send a voicemail in, send that to life dead podcast at outlook.com and if you would like to contribute to the upkeep of the blog and podcast you can do so at coffee.com forward slash my style of life there that's ko-fi com forward slash my style of life there where you can send in a donation or visit the digital merch store where you can get uh, the Life Debt Holiday Special, aka the breaking of a fan, uh, where I do a commentary and review the Star Wars Holiday Special, and Yub Nubbin Season 1, where I have a look at the first season of the Ewoks cartoon series and do reviews for each episode. And those are both over at coffee.com forward slash my styles right there. But if you would like to join the Patreon, oh, we've got a Patreon, folks. You can do so over at patreon.com forward slash my style And for the low, low price of £3 a month, you can get your name on this page. Access to the Life Day Holiday Special and the breaking of a fan and all, yes, all of Yub Nubbin. That is two full seasons of Yub Nubbin, a Life Day podcast. Uh, and you can get the ad free podcast episodes and ad free blog posts. And that's at patreon.com forward slash my Star Wars Life Day. Now, let's get on 
with the sharp. First off, we are heading over to the collection corner for some Micro Fighter Madness. I remember the first wave of Micro Fighters being released in early 2014. Uh, there was a mobile app released to coincide with them where you got to play as the various ships on a top-down level collecting Lego stuff and blasting enemies. And whilst I managed to waste a considerable amount of time on the game, I never bought into the toys in a big way. Up until recently, I had bought two as a way to get the minifig included. Firstly, the Ghost, or Hera, uh, as I was trying to get my hands on the whole Ghost group, and Kylo Ren's shuttle from The Rise of Skywalker, as I couldn't justify buying the new version of the ship uh, just for Kylo Ren helmet with red cracks. But the other day, or at this point of the week, uh, my Micro Fighter collection doubled thanks to some of our best having a clear out of the moving house and coming across two sealed sets and very kindly gifting them to me. Um, and those are the from Series 3, the Resist X-Wing and the First Order Snowspeeder. Both of the microfighters come with two bags of features and an instruction book. So first up is the First Order Snowspeeder, which comes with the First Order Snowtrooper. Obviously, uh, the vehicle was initially featured in the chase sequence that was later removed from the film for pacing, um, and Lego produced a regular film version of the vehicle as part of that first wave of sets from The Force Awakens, as well as this microfighter. Uh, the microfighter version is a pretty good representation of the vehicle. Uh, the design is pretty simple and incorporates plenty of the vehicle's details, like the two line engines and the front mounted blaster made from a stud launcher blaster in this uh, set. And this major minifig is the usual army folder fodder, uh, but it's a nicely detailed one with a printed torso and legs, as well as a printed one by one square for the trooper's backpack. Next up, the Resistance X-Wing comes in grey and blue with opening and closing wings, each of which has a push projectile in place of where the usual cannons are. The use of this kind of play feature is great because it keeps the true aesthetic of the ship and it's still something fun for the kids. For me, it's the minifig that makes this set. It was the first set to include the legend that is Snap Wexler, and he was later included in the Resistance Awing Starfighter set uh, from the first wave of sets based on the Rise of Skywalker. This is the OG version, and as Tannen, Snap Wexler is one of my favourite minor characters from the whole saga. It's great to get my hands on this one. A pair of fun little builds leads to our success. It's easy to see the microfighters have become as popular as they are, and great for collectors who don't have much space. Next up, we're heading back to the collection corner with Garazed Zebarelios, the Black Series figure review. When the full set of Rebels figures was revealed, the excitement level for the Zeb figure was high. Very high. Firstly, because he was the only member of the Ghost crew to have not been realized as part, released, sorry, 
not been released as part of the Black Series collection. And secondly, this would be the first time we get to see a realistic version of the Lassat Rebel, who we finally see in live-action courtesy of The Mandalorian Season 3. The figure is impressive. Due to his larger size, Zeb is the first deluxe figure released in the new packaging. Based on the character's appearance in Rebel Season 2, the design is superb. The detail is top-notch, and the facial sculpt really brings Zeb to life complete with his almost perpetual frown. Add in a button activated carabas sound effect and it would be almost perfect, but thankfully the Black Series shies away from such gimmicks. Zeb comes with his bow rifle and his electrostatic configuration, a perfect accessory for the character. However, it does feel lacking when compared to later deluxe figures, which all came with multiple accessories. Just look at the different Boba Fett figures and even Cobb Vance. It could have been possible to release Zeb with his bow rifle in both its configurations to give collectors the chance to display the figure with either option. Heck, even Chopper has more accessories. For me, as beautiful as the box art is, it's the weakest out of all of the Ghost Crew. It doesn't quite hit as hard as Ezra, Hera, or even Chopper for that matter, but needless to say, it looks stunning and displays well lined up with the rest of the crew. Zeb is a must-have figure for any Star Wars Rebels fan. A great-looking figure for display both in and out of the box. Next up, we've got Star Wars Jedi Battle Scars by Sam Knight Review. Uh, I took this one off uh, whilst I trailblazed through Phase 2 of the High Republic and felt that seeing as Jedi Survivor was only available on the new generation of consoles, and I'd be more likely to have a cold shower on Mustafar before getting one of those these days, I could put it off a while. Thankfully, we've recently had the announcement that Respawn are releasing uh, Jedi Survivor on Xbox One, so I am doubly glad I've done this audiobook review now. Uh, set two years into the five-year gap between Fallen Order and Survivor, Battle Scars tells the story of what seems to be the beginning of the end of the Mantis crew that would eventually lead to their splitting up, which is where they are in the new game. Uh, my one big takeaway from this book is that it is, by far, the horniest Star Wars book ever. The first half of the book is so Horny, I thought I was reading 50 Shades of the Galaxy Far, Far Away. I'm no prude, but when it comes to Star Wars, I just didn't really know what to think. I mean, this isn't a criticism at all. I've had plenty of books where the act has been insinuated. Just look at Lost Stars by Claudia Gray, or Beth Reeves' uh, The Princess and the Scoundrel, where it's alluded a number of times that Han and Leia were making use of their hotel room on their honeymoon. However, this was the first time it's been blatantly marched down the street like the Peace March in The Phantom Menace. Horniness aside, Battle Scars is a decent entry into the Star Wars town, but its main purpose is to lay the seeds of dissent between the crew of the Mantis and essentially put the characters on their various paths where they are found in Jedi Survivor. As a set book, it does a great job, and Sam Mags really writes all of the crew brilliantly, and the new character the new characters are well fleshed out. We really get into the heart of the crew and what makes each of them tick and what their end goals really are. 
Now, the interactions between the crew really feel like a group of people who have become a family through their time together and really hit their first rocky patch. And it's how they move on at the end of the book that counts. And in terms of the villains, the cover has the fifth brother on display, which, whilst he does appear, his role is pretty small, whilst still important. Yes, Battle Scars does have the usual Star Wars hero versus villain story. Uh, the battle between good and evil, however, really takes a back seat, and the focus is on their is on their the crew and their relationships. Overall, it is a good fun book. However, it's not one I'll be rushing to revisit. Maybe in the run up to Jedi Survivor hitting Xbox One, but beyond that, I'm really not sure. Again, not because it's bad or I didn't enjoy it. Um, it just wasn't my cup of tea. But nevertheless, it is well worth the time to read or listen. And next up, we've got Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Some thoughts. Uh, in 2008, we were treated to a merchandise extravaganza from Lucasfilm. Like the big push for Shadows of the Empire, which had a game, comic series, a book, a soundtrack, and toys all hit the shelves, Souls of Force Unleashed followed the same model to pretty much amazing success. Following the, sto yeah. Following the story of Darth Vader's secret apprentice, Galen Merrick, aka Starkiller, as he aids his master in vanquishing the remaining Jedi with Captain Juno Eclipse as his pilot. After Vader betrays Starkiller, he and Juno search for a survivor of his Jedi hunting, Master Ron Posey, and they discover more allies and start the formation of the Rebel Alliance leading Galen to confront Vader and Palpatine aboard the first Death Star during its conclusion construction. In terms of the overall story, it follows the Star Wars trope of redemption, the Starkiller turns to the light side after realising Vader was the one who killed his father, and then seeking out a Jedi Master, fighting the Empire. We've seen it before, but it's about the journey, not the destination, and the Force Unleashed is jam-packed with fun. Starkiller has fast become a favourite character among the fandom, with Sam Witwer's performance being top-notch, and the course for character to be integrated somehow into the Disney timeline is understandable and entirely possible, just moving him into an Inquisitor role, rather than the secret apprentice. A variation that could also work for Myra Jade. Starkiller's popularity has continued to the point where the character has been introduced in the Galaxy of Heroes mobile game as one of its legendary characters, which requires a lot of work to unlock. Despite the great story in amazing terms, I do feel that The Force Unleashed has, through the overall style of the game, resulted in high expectations when it comes to Force users and their power levels. Sure, we've seen characters use the Force to stop moving ships, and I can get behind the moments where you are catching TIE fighters above you and crushing them. It's the segment where you have to use the Force to pull a frickin' Star Destroyer out of the sky that I feel has led to a segment of the fandom to believe that Luke Skywalker should be able to pull Star Destroyers to the ground and be, in general, incredibly overpowered. The whole concept feels ridiculous to me. No one in the world except the behind-the-scenes folks at Lucasfilm. Heck, you didn't even try and use the Force to stop the Count's shuttle, instead he struggled with a large bit of machinery. 
I never read the novelization, but I did read the graphic novel adaptation, which felt very short. But when the only parts that really needed that thing are cutscene and main battles, some of the imagery was amazing, especially Vader after his battle with Starkiller, with his cybernetics on show, and his suit absolutely decimated. Whilst the game is great fun to play and at times wildly over the top, its removal from the canon was absolutely essential. Unlike the games we've had in the EA era, there's no necessity to make the story tie in directly with the stories from the films. The inclusion of Leia as a MacGuffin and Starkiller being the inspiration for the formation of the Rebel Alliance. Overall fun, with great characters and a decent enough story, is understandable why the Force Unleashed is so popular and acts as a great foundation that Respawn were able to use as a stepping stone on the road to Jedi Fallen Order. And now, we hit the Darth Bane Rule of Two by Drew Carpenter audiobook review. Starting right where Darth Bane Path of Destruction ended, the Rule of Two details the early days of Zana's apprenticeship to Darth Bane, as well as jumping 10 years ahead to a key series of events for their relationship. Bane is seeking the knowledge on how to create a Sith holocron, but becomes infested with crab-like parasites. Over the 10 years between the time periods, creates a living armour that enhances his dark side abilities, but also makes him really unstable. Xander under and Xander? No, Zana undertakes her own mission for Bane to find a way to remove the parasite safely by going to the Jedi Temple, masking her dark side energy and discovering the key to aiding her master. But a chance encounter with her cousin, whom she last saw 10 years prior and dismembered him to save her from being killed by Bane, leads to a hasty exit and a group of Jedi to the uh, planet Typhon. Uh, a battle ensues with the Sith Jira defeating a group of Jedi but a severely injured Bane needing medical attention. Knowing she needs Bane's ongoing teachings, Zana takes Bane along with her cousin to a healer that saved Bane when he was poisoned prior to the final battle on the Rasan, leading to the Jedi leading the Jedi to them once Bane was healed and using Sith sorcery, Zana and her master avoid detection whilst her cousin is driven mad and the healer kills leading the Jedi to believe that Xana's cousin was the rumoured Sith survivor and the start of their belief that the Sith are, in fact, extinct. The sequel to Path of Destruction had a lot to live up to. Carpishan's uh, first novel in the trilogy was an absolute masterpiece, and the ongoing story continues to move at a solid pace. The characters are so well written, um, and fleshed out with Bane's single-minded determination to ensure the continuation of the Sith and discover new, well, old teachings uh, through holocrons as well as making his own. Zana is a great character. Oh. Zana is a great character and her determination is a key strength. Initially, she's determined to prove Bane Prove to Bane that she is worthy of being Sith Apprentice, and by the middle of the book, that determination is focused on keeping the Sith Lord alive long enough to impart more lessons before she inevitably has to kill him, and all the while creating situations through manipulation to test Bane's weaknesses. Having really enjoyed this latest listen, through. Um, 
I must have listened to this one at least five times by now. Um, I've actually sought out for a Marvel Limited subscription to read the Jedi vs. Sith miniseries, which formed a fair chunk of the last novel, as well as preparing to start the audiobook for Dynasty of Evil, the third book of the Dark Bane trilogy. Um, this audiobook is narrated by Jonathan Davis, and it's an amazing way of absorbing this book. The musical choices were superb, and the narration is fantastic. Next to Mark Thompson, Davis is a true legend where it comes to Star Wars narration. So here we go with the Ahsoka Lego Collection. After finding out my wife was pregnant with our son, it meant one thing. Well, in terms of this post, uh, I had to give up the office, aka the Star Wars room. Uh, this obviously led to both a decline in set purchase, so we could save money to buy the necessary items, which we had sold the month before we found out she was pregnant and a relocation of the collection. The majority has gone into storage. However, after some negotiations, shorter than those held between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan and the Trade Federation, I got the top two shelves of the bookcase that was originally in the office that was put in the front room, and some of the bay windowsill in the front room, which already held the Death Star. And there was a pog on the kitchen, uh, on the kitchen uh, windowsill. Since then, I've built the four sets that I've reviewed since the blog return, and three of those I've managed to keep out for display. And with the promise of shelves and the future of the new office, aka the computer alcove, I'm looking to the future. There is a pair of current sets which I'd like to pick up, uh, the TIE Bomber and the TIE Interceptor versus Mandalorian Fang Fighter. As with the two of those, I then have all of the original trilogy TIE variants I'd like to have a shelf dedicated to them. And then we've got the announcements of the September Wave of Sets, three from Ahsoka and the Coruscant Guard gunship, that were all on my radar. The gunship, however, has dropped off my list. I'm not a fan of the look, and it's a lot of money for one pretty amazing minifigure, Padme. But then there were the three sets from Ahsoka. First up, it's the New Republic E-Wing versus Shin Hattie's Starfighter. Regardless of the great minifig selection, we've got Morgan Ellsworth, Balan Skull, and Shin Hattie, um, and those alone are worth the price for admission. Um, here we're getting two quite unique looking ships in one go. Yee Wing would look great alongside a selection of the Rebel slash New Republic era Starfighters, uh, Pose X Wing and the Resistance Y Wing and A Wing, uh, with its sleek design, but will show the original trilogy versions up, and quite rightly so. Shin Hattie's Starfighter is reminiscent of an N1 Starfighter in terms of the wings, but the real-world Spitfire look of the ship is fascinating in terms of the build, and the colour scheme is so different from the usual white, grey, black with a splash of colour that Star Wars sets often, but certainly not always, consist of. Ahsoka Tano's T6 Jedi Shuttle is an updated version of a set from way back when, originally uh, introduced in the Clone Wars, and she is piloting a relic of the bygone era, but it looks beautiful. Again, the many things are worth the price of admission, with Ahsoka Sabine and Hu Yang joined by the mysterious Inquisitor Marak. It's a mid-sized build with 599 pieces, so we're not getting spacious in theory, but the overall design looks really good, 
especially with the red and grey con um, contract contrast, especially with the red and grey contrasting each other. Sorry, that was a typo. Um, contrasting each other nicely and rotating body, which would allow for a myriad of display options. And finally, it was retired before I jumped back into Lego collecting. The second-hand price was so high. It's been a set I've longed for for so long when it was rumoured to be coming out this year. The opportunity to get the ghost in Lego form became too hard to pass up, and it has already been promised to be purchased at release. Oh, yeah. It feels updated and expanded from the 2014 version which clocked in at 929 pieces, which for 69.99 is way beyond reasonable. The new version is 1,394 pieces, which for 150 quid is expected these days and not a bad price. The Ghost does come with the Phantom 2, which was previously released as its own set back when Rebel Season 3 was released and featured the one and only Grand Admiral's Claw minifig. This new version seems smaller and not as detailed, but it does nicely stuff onto the Ghost like its on-screen version. Other than Hera, Jason and Chopper, I'm not feeling fuss about First Officer Hawkins and Lieutenant Data just yet, but perhaps that will change after the series comes out. It's been a while since I've been wowed by most of the ways of sets in the last year or so. Even the two Oberon Kenobi sets took me a while for me to warm up to. Um, but I've been really dialed into these Ahsoka sets from the moment they were even rumoured, and I'm really looking forward to picking them up. Hey there everyone, before we get into the show, I just want to shamelessly self-promote coffee.com forward slash my Star Wars Life Debt. Uh, you can join up as a member, you can do a one-off donation, or you can pick up some of our digital stuff on the merch store, which is right there on coffee.com forward slash MyStarWarsLife. So, please head on over there. Check it out if you want to support the show and the podcast. Thank you very much, guys. Now, let's get on with the show. Join me in this blast from the past with my mini, my review of the Jedi vs. Sith miniseries from 2001. Let me take you back in time to October 2001. It was half term and I must have done some job around the house because I had come into some money and because I made my way on foot with my usual mode of transportation at the time to my regular comic shop. One goal in mind, get some Star Wars comics. I was able to buy two issues, four and five, and despite my every attempt, I could not for the life of me get the story, get into the story. So I didn't bother continuing the series and wasn't able to find any of the previous issues. However, after my recent re-listen to Darth Bane World of Two, I thought I would get myself a trial on Marvel Unlimited and give the full series a go. Essentially, the last third of Darth Bane, Path of Destruction, and the prologue of Rule of Two act as a retcon of this series, with a number of details from the comics being altered for the novels. 
what really struck me with the miniseries was how little there was in terms of context. The first part has Bane approach the healer after being poisoned by Lord Khan. But first off, there was no backstory regarding the poisoning. And secondly, other than that I knew what was going on because of the novels, there was no real introduction to the characters. And not in the way, and not in the way we get dropped into the middle of one story before getting into the main plot. The plot is already in full swing. And, and as a reader, you're just desperately trying to catch up. What I really did like was spending time away from Darth Bane, getting to know Lord Hart, and spending more time with Lord Valentine for Fowler, and seeing his extravagance in a visual medium. However, I'm sure that in the books he's depicted as human rather than a satyr, but I could be wrong and either forgot or just didn't notice when I was listening. I did also really enjoy getting more of the backstory for Daravis and Zana. Giving their arrival on Rusan and their time in the midst of the war more weight after the reunion in World of Two. Whilst this run is no longer canon, I really like seeing the representation of the Jedi in this era. The aesthetic of the warriors in the encampment really give the vibes of war in the Middle Ages or the Game of Thrones era, just with spaceships and lightsabers, alongside swords and bows and arrows. If this were considered canon, you could easily draw a line between the Jedi like Fafala and Lord Har, to the Jedi of the High Republic. However, given that in the years since this series and the expanded universe, and in the next few years with James Mangold's upcoming Dawn of the Jedi film, we are diving even further into the past of the galaxy far, far away, and I get the feeling that the visual feel of this period could be vastly different now. It's an enjoyable story, with decent art, in a style that, for me, represents comics of the early 2000s. But it lacks a whole lot of context for the era. It does, however, serve as a decent visual aid for the Rusan campaign for those who have read the Darth Bane trilogy. I'm glad I've read the series as a whole, but more glad that I didn't buy the whole run. Please tell me down this little rabbit hole that I've been uh, thinking about in my next post. Always there are no more, no less. A master and an apprentice. Thanks to his inclusion in the Clone Wars, we know that the character of Darth Bane is considered canon, and Yoda knows who Darth Bane is, and the Sith Lord's role in creating the Rule of Two, which is how the Sith remain hidden in the shadows for a thousand years before Darth Sidious put his plot into action. Now it's completely logical that Yoda would know of Darth Bane. The ancient master was training new members of the Jedi Order by the time he was a hundred. It's easy to assume that even 200 years after the last battle on Rusan, where we could believe the Sith were wiped out, that the Jedi would be teaching it as part of their history. As we learn through the Darth Bane trilogy, Bane and Xana wipe out any Jedi that knew of their existence. So how does Yoda, a thousand years later, give or take, know about Darth Bane's rule of two? And if the Jedi knew about the survival of the Sith Order, why did they not act on that information? According to canon, the rule of two is the successor, and considered a pale imitation to, by Darth Sidious, an older Sith doctrine called the Doctrine of the Dyad. The only known record of the doctrine is etched into a wall in the Sith Temple on Exegol, 
However, if the Dark Bane of the Canon timeline is anything like his legend counterpart, with his vast knowledge of Sith history, it's likely he would have learned of the Doctrine through ancient texts, or even what possessed one of the two Wayfinders. It's even possible that more Wayfinders were made, and Bane destroyed all but two once he decreed the rule of two. The problem is, even if Yoda learned about the Doctrine of the Diet, he would still not know about Bane's rule of two. Only one of the two living Sith would realistically be able to tell the Jedi about about their existence, given that they choose to essentially hide in plain sight, masking themselves from the Jedi. In the real world, I think that it's just one of those plot holes that will never get explained away fully. As the canon timeline expands, perhaps we'll get a fuller explanation. But at this moment, I believe that the introduction of the Doctrine of the Diet was for two reasons. To add, a, to, add of, uh, to add a layer of meanings to the concept of the Diet between Rey and Ben Solo. As well as possibly laying in about the creation of the Rule of Two. It's not clear if the Doctrine of the Diet would have played a larger role in earlier drafts of The Rise of Skywalker, or even some of the deleted scenes, as the Diet concept seemed to play a larger role in the film at some point. However, it's entirely possible that we'll never, ever, get an answer. We're diving into canon again, uh, with Star Wars Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade by Delilah S. Brawson Review. For a start, I'd like to thank the lovely folks at Delray Publishing for sending me a review copy of this book. After two amazing novels set in the Star Wars galaxy, Delilah S. Dawson returns with another triumphant story that introduces us to an amazing character built upon the look of one of the Inquisitors featured in Charles Saul's Darth Vader comics run. Like Dawson's previous Star Wars work, the story didn't go at all the way it expected. Like Phasma, this isn't just an origin story, but a deeply personal tale that details how one Jedi can search for the dark side, their reasons, and their motivations. Iskatakaris is a Jedi Padawan who often feels conflicted. Her master takes her across the galaxy in search of Force artifacts, and has barely any time for her. She has no idea where she comes from, or even what species she is, and after an accident while she was a youngling, which left another young Jedi severely injured, she's pretty much ostracized by her peers. As the Clone Wars begin, she, like many other Padawans, are elevated to the rank of Jedi Knight, and Iskat is sent on a mission which unfortunately leads to disaster, resulting in her being grounded for two years, teaching the young ones in the crash. As the Clone Wars come to an end, a few chance encounters with Palpatine, as well as the spies in the Jedi Temple, to the Sith Lord, lead him to offering her a chance to join the Inquisitors with promises of answer, answers for freedom. As she trains with her fellow Inquisitors, she investigates her origins and finally learns of her home planet, Korra. She finally meets her family and learns of her mother, who left the Order after failing to elevate to the rank of Jedi Knight. As she sends on her first mission and learns that Tualan, uh, a, another Jedi Knight who she grew up with in the Jedi Temple, survived Order 66 and is also an Inquisitor, the two begin working together and soon form a relationship. 
is that relationship that is their downfall, as Vader sends his death dealings through the Force and sets about chasing them through the airways of Coruscant before eventually killing both his fat and Tuolan. Dawson writes such a stunning book, which doesn't shy away from really hard topics such as bullying, mental health issues, and suicide. And it paints a picture of how far gone the Jedi Order has become thanks to the manipulations of the Dark Side and the Clone Wars. Iskat is naturally drawn to the Dark Side, but rather than help her understand this, she's paired with a Jedi Knight who quite obviously doesn't want a Padawan. She's kept on the end of a very short leash by the Council, especially Mace Windu, who, as we know, is a Truly sensitive and caring soul, man that's uh, Calvin is oozing love that one. Much like Anakin's journey to the dark side, we can really see how and why is that eventually joins the Inquisitorious. Being denied any answers about her pre-Jedi life, ostracized by her peers, and not given one ounce of trust by the leaders of the Order all culminate with the obvious choice, go where she's promised answers and freedom. Dawson to continue the trend of introducing us to wonderful characters, with this guy joining the ranks of Cardinal and Vimerardi and becoming an instant favour. Inquisitor, Rise of the Red Light, was not what I expected, and I thought we would get more time with this guy as an Inquisitor and hunting down more Jedi. Thankfully, my expectations were completely wrong, and what we got was so much better than anything I could have thought. It also shed light on a character who was initially created to fill the ranks of the Jedi Hunters for a few issues of the comics. It has now become one of Delilah Rush Dawson's instant classic characters. Here we go, folks. It's the last part of the episode. Uh, thank you for sticking with me this long. Let's dive in to Darth Bane, Dynasty of Evil by Drew Carpishan, audiobook reviewed. Drew Carpishan's Darth Bane trilogy comes to an explosive end in Dynasty of Evil, which pits Sith Master Darth Bane against his apprentice, Darth Vanna, in the long-awaited fight to determine the future of the Sith. The conclusions of Darth Bane's story feels much smaller in scope than both Path of Destruction and Royal 2, but packs an incredible punch and doesn't hold back throughout. Set ten years after Rule of 2, Bane and Xana have continued their master-apprentice relationship, but Bane is becoming older and restless that Xana hasn't attempted to confront him for the title of Sith Master. Bane goes in search of a holocaust to learn the key to eternal life, or the ritual of essence transfer, whilst he sends Xana to Doan where a Jedi has been killed whilst investigating a group of potential Sith artifacts. Meanwhile, Princess Sarah of Doan is having nightmares of her father, the healer Kaleev, and the brutish Sith Lord that threatened him into healing him. Along with her bodyguard, who had hired an assassin to kill the rebels that killed Sarah's husband, begins a form of plan for Sarah to vanquish her nightmares of the Sith Lord and avenge her father. Bane is captured and taken to a long abandoned prison on Doan, where he is tortured by Sarah, whilst her bodyguard looks to aid Bane, whom she knew as dead in the Sith army. Once freed, Bane slowly gains his strength and goes through the prison where he meets the assa an assassin, a force sensitive Tocchi, and the two join forces, for voices? forces. Bane takes her as his new apprentice after a brief confrontation with 
Stepinet. After a brief confrontation with Zana, the assassin, now Darth Cognus, takes Bane to Ambria, where Sarah has gone into hiding. Bane has Cognus kill the healer's daughter. When Xana arrives, she and Bane battle. Each are well matched until Xana uses her Swiss sorcery to manipulate Bane's mind before she uses the dark side energy of the planet to attack Bane, using tendrils of dark side energy to tear Bane's body apart. Knowing his time has come, he performs the ritual of essence transfer and his body disintegrates and, and his mind enters Xana's body. Xana approaches Cognus, who swears allegiance with her, asking who is in control. Xana acknowledges it's her, but her left hand begins to shake like Baines had started to do as he'd gotten older. I really love the smaller scope of the book. Rather than having so much going on like in The Rule of Two, which had so many plot threads weaving together in a massive tapestry, Dynasty of Evil does have a few storylines, but it's really the impending battle between Bane and Xana that drives the narrative. What's really stood out for me on this listen through, I believe it's my second, is how there are some really strong connections to the Rise of Skywalker, specifically the essence transfer, which according to what Bane learns is best done while she's using a clone version of the Sith Lord performing the ritual. That's familiar. Also, the destruction of Harry's body when the essence transfer happens, it makes me wonder if the utter destruction of Palpatine's body in the Rise of Skywalker was akin to him trying to take over Rey. Could he have been successful? But the battle between his consciousness and Rey's is a thing that killed her with Ben bringing her back. And of course, when, ben, when Palpatine declares that he is all of the Sith, does that mean that every Sith Lord has transferred themselves into their apprentice since the fall of the Brotherhood of Darkness? Or am I just looking too far into this? Dynasty of Evil is a brilliant conclusion to the Dark Bane trilogy. It really lets us see how the Rule of Two plays out in the end, and we get to see different and more devastating Sith powers. Bane and Xana are a great pair of lead characters, and the evolution of their relationship between Rule of Two and Dynasty of Evil has really developed and grown from teacher and student to a pair of antagonistic individuals who both have the same goal, to be the Dark Lord of the Sith. Well, there we go, guys. We're fully caught up with the blog after the last four weeks. Um, so thank you for spending the uh, last however long. I haven't put the episode together yet, so I'm not sure. But thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard, if you enjoy what you read, if you just really like what I'm doing, um, it would be massively appreciated if you could visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash life debt blog pod. You can follow me on Twitter at bloodyon, B-L-O-I-D-Y-O-R-M-E. I'm also on Instagram. You can follow me there at instagram.com forward slash my spells life debt. And I joined that threads thing. So you can hit that one up at, at my spells life debt at threads.com. And if you do like what I'm doing, if you like the blog, you enjoy the podcast, um, and would like to contribute to the upkeep, uh, then you can do so over at coffee.com forward slash my style of life. That's K-O-F-I 
patreon.com forward slash my spells by step where you can either make a donation or purchase some bonus content which is the life debt holiday special aka the broken of a fan um, and yub nubbins a life debt podcast season one uh, those are available on coffee.com forward slash my spells by debt um in the digital store um, and if or if you'd like to become a member where you get um where you can get your name on the support page you get um the life to holiday special if you're breaking the fan uh, full access to yub nubbin a life debt podcast seasons one and two uh and ad free podcast episodes and ad free blog post um that's all at patreon.com forward slash my spells life debt um so yes if you'd like to contribute or donate those are two places where you can go to do so um and there we go i'm gonna head off i've got an hour and a half before the new episode of the soap comes out um keep an eye out for uh, later on in the week where I'm going to have a full Ahsoka catch-up. That's going to be the first three episodes that I'm going to be talking about. Um, and that'll be coming later this week. Uh, and I think that's everything. So, once again, thank you for listening. And punch it chewy. Bye.